let's talk about that for a second. So a consent to settle, when, when you tell your insurance company, hey, I'm okay settling up to and including policy limits, let's assume it's yes. a $1 million policy. That means that you've given them authority to roll over and to give them a million dollars. And if the carrier, in its wisdom, decides that it is a defensible case and they want to roll the dice uh, and protect their $1 million, um, they're playing with their own money. It's house money. So if they get burned for $5 million from, uh, from a jury verdict, then they're going to have to dig deep into their own pockets or appeal, whatever. You're not on the hook because you've done everything you can possibly do to make that work. One other point that I'd like to make is that there are a number of options when you want to protect your nest egg. And that's exactly what you want to do. You don't want to go bankrupt. Um, you know, just trying to self-righteously um, get your day in court. So first things first, when there are no problems and everything is safe, protect your assets. There are formal asset protection programs. There are different things that can be done. Some are actually quite minor and easy, just how things are titled. Um, retirement accounts, for example, are often protected depending upon the state you live in, like Texas or Florida, your homestead may be protected. But just understand these types of things where you are protected and where you're vulnerable. And to the extent you can make any moves, do it. So that's one thing that can be done. The other thing is um, the um, consent to settle. So if, if you give your carrier the right to settle, um, you like you individually will likely not go bankrupt because um, if you say roll over and give policy limits and you get a $5 million $5 million verdict because the carrier decided to defend and maybe appropriately defend, um, you're not really gambling with your own money. And then finally, there's something called a high-low agreement. High-low agreement is a tool that can be used when each side has some risk, meaning that the plaintiff knows this is not a slam dunk case. You know it's not a slam dunk case. Everybody has risk. You want your day in court, but you don't want to risk your nest egg. There's something called a high-low agreement where the purpose of the jury, you're going to get your day in court, the purpose of the jury is to determine whether you are liable or not liable. That's it. They'll come up with a number, and that number may be anything from zero, you're not liable, to a gazillion dollars, where you're liable for a gazillion dollars. But none the numbers are not relevant because you've had this side agreement, a high-low agreement, where the attorney, the plaintiff attorney, will not walk away with nothing. So a high-low agreement may be um, an agreement where on the low end, the plaintiff attorney will get $100,000. On the high end, they may get policy limits, say, a million dollars. The before picture may have been every side takes unlimited risk. You win, the doctor, plaintiff collects nothing, or the jury comes back and gives you a really bad day, you lose $10 million. But in that particular model, when we had this side agreement, the side high-low agreement, the uh, the bookends were 100000 to a $1 million. So um, if the jury comes back and says, you, the doctor, win, you still have to write a check for $100,000. We won't get into the weeds of the benefits of that, but that's not reportable to the data bank. So they get a little <laughs> money and go away. On the other end, the jury comes back and gives you a rotten day, says a gazillion dollars you have to pay. 20 million, or in this case, 28 million, million dollars. <laughs> you go, whoa, 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 we've got this high-low agreement and it's capped at a million dollars. I'm gonna tender policy limits. At least I had my day in court. I feel better about that. My family doesn't have to worry. I didn't have to dig into my 
my personal funds to do that. So I digress. Keep going. Well, it's all it's all important, um, but um, I'm not even sure where we were anymore. Oh yeah, I wasn't um, I wasn't doing well, uh, and then um, I went to trial in 2011. So I was I saw her in 06. I was named soon after in 07. I went to trial in 2011. So your carrier um, elected to defend, meaning that you yeah, you yes. basically said, look, I'm not risking everything I've built up um, over time, whatever that may be. Um, right. That is, if you think it's defensible, that's great, but I don't want to have to dig into personal funds to do this. And and I'm, I'd love to have my day in court, but ultimately I'm not willing to risk everything just to have my day in court. Right. right? And I think that they really, they thought twice about it probably because I was a rotten defendant. Um, and I, one of the episodes of the podcast is with one of the junior attorneys that was responsible for, um, getting me into fighting shape for my deposition, which was yeah. a real task. Um, and so just sort of, we laugh about, it was like a, my fair lady scenario. Oh, sorry. My doorbell. Um, it was like a, my fair lady scenario where I just had to, um, I had to be taught how to act, how to speak, how to control my emotions, how to, you know, how to be. And then I think that what happened was when, um, when I finally got things barely right at deposition, they realized like, oh, okay, she's a teachable animal. So mm. um, I think that maybe we'll, we'll take a chance because the case that the medicine was sound and my grasp of the medicine was absolutely sound and I can make very good arguments as to why I exceeded standard of care. Um, but I came off as I was, I was super defensive. I was really angry. I was um, sort of an emotional, like it was really easy to bait me. Um, I would have looked very bad at trial, but anyway, eventually they decided, no, we want to go to trial. And by the time trial rolled around, like I kind of, I did okay. I think I testified fairly well the first time around. I was a wreck. Um, emotionally i was an absolute wreck um and i i you know there was a defense verdict um it was how, how long how long was the trial uh the first one was about four weeks and did you have to be in court the entire time i did so people need to think about that we're talking about a commitment here that trial oh, huge for complex cases don't don't last you know two days this is more than a law and order episode oh much more and um and that's yeah, absolutely something that that uh, uh, really has to factor into. You're not, you know, if you if you um, your, if your income depends on if you're not salaried, you know, and it depends on how many patients you're seeing. That's a huge thing. Um, for me, also, I hadn't really expected the emotional impact. I know you were on the episode where we talked about expert witnesses. I was not. I was not anticipating the impact that listening to expert witness testimony that was just unbelievably, you know, exaggerated and at times just patently false. Um, I, I had not, and I'm sort of a, you know, I eat righteousness for breakfast someday. You know, I, I, I just have this like overwhelming sense of indignation about this whole thing, but I, um, I, I really found it very hard to, to grapple with. And so the whole thing I, I was, you know, I lost a ton of weight. I just wasn't sleeping. I was really fairly, you know, ill, I would say. 
but then, you know, we won and it was a big relief and it still took a long time to feel a little bit better. And by the time I was just starting to feel a little bit better, I was still kind of wrecked and burned out over everything. But that was when I got uh, the notice of the intent to appeal. Mm-hmm. And the appeal was based on this one, uh, I don't have the words for him, um, expert witness who, so in Rhode Island, where I am, um, anybody in, in any specialty can testify as to standard of care um, for, for an emergency physician. Yeah, which that is, is shocking. Ridiculous. So, I mean, they had, I don't know how many experts because this was sort of a complex case and they had all sorts of weird theories of, of how I could have stopped this from happening. And so they had everyone from like a hematologist um, from Yale. Uh, that's a funny story. I'll tell you a side story about that. Who was testifying as to how fast, because heparin was the treatment back then, how fast heparin would have worked to reverse everything so that she wouldn't have had a stroke. And there were obviously uh, neurologists and the only emergency physician they could find to testify against me was this loser from Canada who actually is an academic guy. Um, and I think he testifies a lot now. He makes his bread and butter a lot about TPA. He like, that's his big focus now is like, if someone didn't get TPA, he loves to, he loves to go after people for that. But anyway, um, so this guy who gets up on the stand and does, you know, he was pretty cagey. Like it was hard to, he, he had very exaggerated and slanted testimony. There were only a couple of times where I'd say he really crossed the line and lied, lied but very misleading in a lot of ways. Um, But anyway, my attorney had um, um, screenshot his, he had a website where he advertised his services. As an expert, expert, testify in OBGYN, family medicine. He wasn't even, he was family medicine trained. But um, anyway, he would testify in all these things. So that was, um, that was brought out at trial. Um, and, um, that combined with the, my verdict came back too fast. The verdict was back in like 25 minutes. And so they argued that the, it was, it had to have been made on bias instead of, um, a careful consideration of the evidence and that the bias was against this expert, um, because he kept hammering home that he was from Canada and in the jury instructions, all the things you learn. I had no idea that jury instructions varied from trial to trial. And oh, they, they matter over, quite a bit. People I fight. I had about, no idea. People they, fight for days over the, you know, whether you can put a comma or an extra word in there. Oh, yeah. So yeah. what the argument was, he pushed very hard to have standard of care in the United States. Um put into the jury instructions. And so they argued that they, that they um, were unduly biased against this guy from Canada. And I thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. Um, And the medicine of the case, like obviously still stood and lo and behold, um, it went through every layer of the Rhode Island courts. And in 2015, they overturned my verdict. And I was I was completely beside myself. Okay. When did you take care of this patient again? 2006. Okay. So you're talking about nine years went by. And then what you've learned is that you're going to get to do this all over again after nine years. Yeah. So. um, That's a rotten day. Yeah, it was a rotten day. It was a rotten, a a lot longer than a day. I was just, and so that was around the time when I, um, I really started kind of pushing them to settle. I didn't want to go to trial again. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing this again. I already did this once. I proved it to everybody, whatever. Like I, I'm done right. with this. And they did not want to settle. 
Um, so my insurer did not want to settle. And they were really convinced now, especially like now that it went to trial and like all of the weaknesses of their case were totally exposed. There's no freaking way that anything could have stopped this from happening. Like no way. Especially and you have to show up because about. the problem yeah. is if you just basically say, I'm not even going to show up, their argument may be you don't show up. You're not cooperating. We're not going to cover you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to show up. But I mean, like, I just didn't want to. Um, and so there was one day where I just I was I had this, again, same same ex-Marine attorney who um, was basically like, you've got to just put your big girl pants on and we're going <laughs> to, you're going to get ready and we're going to do this. And I hung up the phone and I was like bawling, like, as I, you know, become very accustomed to. And um, I had this, finally, this sort of epiphany where I was just like, you know what, I'm not going to be like this anymore. I'm not going to be like this anymore. I have to learn how to get better. I have to learn how to get better because I just I've it's been like the better part of a decade and my kids are all grown up and all of this is this has been just too much. And um, so that's when it, I think that's when and I, I describe it. There was this epiphany, but somewhere before that had been these sort of underpinnings of like, I need to get better. I need to get better. Like, what can I do to get better? Like I the there's that pre-contemplation phase when they talk about like, you know, when when people really change their lives, there's this pre-contemplation phase. Um, and then there's like the real contemplation, then there's the decision. So I was in that pre-contemplation phase for a while. And then there, it like hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I gotta, I gotta, I gotta fix this. Um, and so that was when I just, I ordered, I ordered some books about litigation stress. I'd had a book in my possession that someone had given to me who knew that I was having a hard time and I had put it in my bedside table, but I could never bring myself to read it. Um, and so that was called when good doctors get sued. And I just liked the title because it made me feel better. By the way, did, did you sued. know Louise Andrew at that time? I'm sure I did not know her at that time. No, okay. no, 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 no. So that all came much later. Okay. Um, and so I, I didn't know she existed. I didn't know anything yeah. about her. So, yeah, she's, she's, a she's amazing. She's an ER doc. She, yes. And featured very heavily in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, Imagine um, that. Yeah. And then regular like self-help books, dealing with stress, blah, blah, blah. Like I just started. And then I started making these decisions where I just, I kind of changed my mindset about everything. And I was like, you know what? I'm getting sued. I've been being sued for a long time and it absolutely sucks. So I deserve to make changes in my life that benefit me and my happiness and my career. And I was either going to learn to like what I did again, or I was going to leave it. I didn't matter what I was going to do, but I was going to make you know, nothing changes if nothing changes, as they say. Mm -hmm. So I was going to make some changes. Um, and so I did. I started making legit changes. Um, and it was pretty um, it was pretty amazing to me. It's like one of the best things about, you know, life in general, I think, is this ability to surprise yourself. Um, and so I did. I surprised myself. And I. What were um, some of the changes that you embraced, if any, come to mind? Were they specific well, or just kind of, I mean, it sounds like if nothing else, your attitude changed. That my is, attitude changed mostly, yeah. but I started doing, you know, where they sort of saying focus on like the small things, these interactions. Mm -hmm. And so, so for one thing for medicine, for me, it, it stopped being about like the trauma bay um, and started being much more about just every single room that I would go into. I would look for the good in the interaction. I would just look for the good. What good thing can I do with this person? What kind of human connection can I make? I, I cut out a, there was an essay in one of these like trade journals about the, um, and I wish I could remember who wrote it, but it was about the the spiritual satisfaction of caring for 
society's forgotten. When you are an emergency physician, that is, you could look at that as a, a curse. You could look at it as a privilege, but you may be the one kind voice that person hears today, the, the chronic schizophrenic, the alcoholic, whomever, right. that we are the only people um, that actually interact with them on a regular basis. Um, and um, there is, there is good to be found in that. So I, I would, I actually cut that out and I carried it around in my pocket for a while. And just to remind me that what I did mattered, like just even these little tiny things, like what I did mattered. Um, and that actually really helped a lot. It really helped a lot. It helped me sort of move back to why did I become this doctor? Why, you know, it helped a lot with burnout in general. Um, but it helped me sort of de-emphasize this whole litigation thing in my mind and really bring to the forefront of what it is that I do on a daily basis. Um, did, did you find that patients reciprocated? That is, if oh, you were- of course. I mean, meaning that it, it almost sounds like instead of treating them as a collection of organs that may have a problem, that you you made it personal and you really got to learn a little bit about them. It doesn't require a whole lot. I mean, sometimes it's just a detail to let them know you are different than the person next door. And it's not just because of your hematocrit. It's because you're a unique individual. And I think because the Absolutely. bar is often so low, it's so easy to exceed. and yeah, it's that's true. That's true. And I think I always was, you know, I think I, I'd like to think that I always was a kind and empathetic doctor, but like definitely when you're feeling kind of burned out, you just want to get through your shift. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm sure that it made me slower, um, which now I'm I'm fine with. I'm sure, you know, it's we're all being metric to death, but um, but uh, yeah, it makes me slower. Um, but it also makes me like my job a whole lot more. Um, so that was one thing. And then, and then that was when I decided, you know, at the time we were going through this whole, that's when my group was being acquired by this other larger academic group. But most of my group just elected just to, now we had a different boss, but we were just staying where we were. And that was when I decided to try my hand at teaching and to, mm -hmm. to go work at the other academic hospitals and try to get involved at the residency program. And that has brought a lot of joy. Um, and obviously these other like really interesting opportunities. Um, and so you never know where these things will lead, but I, I'm a big believer in like, if you're interested in something, I like learning, right? So mm -hmm. um, I saw these things that I, I didn't really want to do research. I wasn't much of a researcher, but um, but learning, teaching, learning these new skills and then thinking about creative ways that I could do things that I thought were interesting. And then after all this whole journal thing, then I, with the the podcast for the journal, which um, which I still do, I actually really enjoy it. Um, I, that's where I came to this idea about like, hey, like now I know how to podcast and I know how to remote interview and um, maybe I'll start doing this. And that was actually two years before the second trial, you know, it was um, maybe not that far, 2017, maybe like a year and a half before I started kind of thinking about this. And I knew I couldn't really release anything until the trial was over because they would find it and they would throw it at me, which was, which they tried to do with things on my Twitter feed and stuff like that, which is really interesting. But, um, but I started laying the groundwork and that was when I started going on social media and asking physicians if they wanted, if there were physicians out there that wanted to talk about their experience in litigation and with litigation stress and um, in, a, in an effort to help others. And then I started interviewing psychologists and um, attorneys uh, about, like yourself, um, about sort of the practical aspects and um, things to keep in mind um, in terms of self-care and resilience strategies and um, protecting your relationships. You know, that was a huge thing for me was learning how to, you know, just how to be mindful 
of the, if, if you ostensibly feel like those relationships are the most important things in your life, then what are you doing to preserve those things? So all of that, um, and then thinking about how am I going to, you know, half the time when I was sitting in trial, I was just thinking like, how am I going to, like, what am I going to, well, how am I going to use this? How am I going to use that? I kept auto, I kept audio diaries. I would go out in the hall and I would talk into my phone. Um, and I, I used those, I used those. Um, and then this is during the at, second when, trial, correct? This is during the second trial. Yeah. yeah. And I was a totally different person by that point. I had learned that I learned the ins and outs. I knew how to be a good defendant. I knew how to testify well. I had gone from being, you know, what they, I was like, you know, a, a special needs case, uh, in the beginning to, um, my, he wouldn't give me top, but the, the, both the, in, the insurance company sent someone to the trial, you know, and my attorney, they gave me top five, top five trial defendants of all time. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So I was, I was, I invited my residents to come. I was not, I mean, not that I wasn't nervous, but like, I knew what I was doing. So to me, was it, it was like, now, rodeo. Yes. No, it wasn't my first rodeo. I knew what I was doing. I knew I was, you know, I'd finally learned like to can play this game. I was watching the plaintiff's attorney trying to figure out like, okay, what's going to bait him? What's going to like, how am I going to phrase? How, how do I, how do I get under his skin? How do I, you know, in a way that makes me still look good, but you know, I want to be poised, but I'm going to throw him off his game. Um, and so it actually, in a weird way, it was sort of like this, it was challenging. You know, it, it came to this point where like, now I've got some skills. So yeah, let's see what you can do. Um, and I know I mean, I, a lot of attorneys will talk to the defendant and say, look, here's how you need to do it. And it becomes scripted. And then you start thinking about, am I off script? Am I on script? And unless mm -hmm. you're an actor, it's very difficult to hold this. It's like trying to teach someone how to dance and they have no background or experience in dancing. You keep thinking about the different steps. Then you realize, oh, this looks awkward. But if you then... Yeah. If you flipped that, if you flip the script and you realize that the people you're talking to, namely the jurors, are patients and you're trying to explain the medicine to a patient, well, you, you've been doing that for years. I mean, it's a skill right. that you already have, but you've got to Absolutely. tap into that. And you have to you have to just be told, think of it as if you're talking to a family member about a particular medical condition that they've asked you about and you've got to explain it to them. And they come from all walks of life and you have no preconceptions. And that's your audience. Um, the way I the way I tell people to do it now is that you want the jury to come away wishing you were their doctor. Exactly. That's what you want. They you want to come you. across as, yes, you want them to trust you, to think that you are, and really, I mean, probably all the things that you are, you just need to let those things shine while people are throwing all sorts of other stuff at you. Um, but really just letting that like compassionate, caring, um, educated, um, smart, good communicator that you, don't have to you be want perfect. that to shine. That's the other oh, thing. You don't have different. to be perfect. I mean, I've never seen a perfect medical record. And if I did, I would think that it was made up and, and not mm -hmm. accurate. But, you know, a medical record should be good. Um, your care should be pretty good. But there, I mean, particularly in a hectic ER environment, there will often be things that aren't perfect. But that's not, th those aren't fatal. They aren't fatal to a defense. No, and I, I, you know, getting to documentation too, I, you know, I know people who stay like three, four hours after their shift just documenting everything. And I, 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 I may have swung the pendulum in one direction, but now I've come back to just like your chart should just show 
that you thought about this person, that you cared about this person. You cared enough to think and write down some things and show that you were thinking and caring and doing your best. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's all it really needs to show. Um, everything else you can say out loud if you have to, but it's that it all comes down to, I think, just being able to demonstrate that you're competent and that you're your goal always was to take the best care of the patient as possible. Those are the two things that you got to show. I don't know if, um, so, maybe it's Maya Angelou who said it, people won't care what you know until they know you care. And that question hmm. is how you, how you put that in. But I think that's, competence is assumed. When people show up into an emergency room or a doctor's office, they assume you're competent because everybody, you know, maybe not an ER, but broadly, patients have made a conscious decision to see you. So they've done some homework and they assume correctly or incorrectly, that you, the doctor, will be competent to solve their problem. But what they don't know is if you care. And I think that's where you you have a quick audition. It doesn't need to be a lengthy audition. And most doctors do an excellent job of this, but they need, the patient needs to pick up on it. And if they pick up on the fact that you care, you've already built goodwill and that goodwill goes a long way because people don't like suing their friend. They don't like suing people they like. It's hard mm -hmm. to do. It can be done. It's just harder mm -hmm. to do it. Right. So not right. everybody has to be your friend, but I think they <laughs> need to know that you care. Yeah. And that's not foolproof either. I remember in the, in her deposition, the plaintiff was asked about I me and she was like, Oh, she was perfectly nice. She was perfectly nice, but <laughs> yes, but so tell me what happened but, with, so keep going. Cause um, I don't, I actually don't know the outcome of the second case. Oh, okay. So, um, well, I will say a little pit stop before mm -hmm. the second trial is a quick story. When I was, I was making these podcasts, I was thinking about like, okay, how am I going to do? And then I took a little breather um, before the second trial thinking like, okay, maybe I don't need to be thinking about this all the time. Um, and I was looking for a positive distraction of some sort. And it, just around that time, um, a friend sent me this email, um, which I had gotten every year and deleted every other year. And this time I kind of read it and thought about it. And it was about this um, charity in Rhode Island um, called Dancing with the Doctors. Hmm. And what they do is they match up physicians with um, professional ballroom dancers oh my God. and you train uh, like it's like dancing with the stars. You train for, you know, four months or so. And then there's a big gala and you compete for awards and uh, like a thousand people at this thing with all like the big hospital head honchos and all this stuff. And so and that year they were raising money for the Red Island Free Clinic. And so each doctor like would fundraise on their own. And then, you know, it was a, it was a big to do like with big trophy and all sorts of awards. And so I, um, I looked at this thing and I was going to delete it again. And I noticed that the, the date of the gala was a week before my trial was supposed to start. And I thought, you know, huh, okay. Like I, I've thought this, I've thought about this before. Cause it sounds seemed like a brilliant fun. idea in terms of timing. <laughs> it was perfect. It was perfect. I signed up. I couldn't believe I signed up, but I signed up. I don't, you talked about dancing before. I don't dance. Um, <laughs> and they gave me this, um, my partner was this um, unbelievable dancer. He'd been like the three-time Czech Republic champion. Oh, I thought um, you were going to say it was so, the, um, it was your defense attorney who. Yeah, um, that'd be funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, no, I don't but see that happening, but it was great. I just, you know, I, and then I was really more, much more obsessed about that than about going to trial. Um, but I also had been really sort of open and honest with 
everybody about why I was doing it. And so, um, you know, about a third of that community hospital, a third of their staff came. Um, they were, you know, red carpet ready. They rented a big limo. They had, you know, signs. It was so much fun. It was like one of the greatest nights of my life because I, of course, I did win. Um, I raised $25,000. I was so determined. Um, but I raised $25,000 for the free clinic by myself. Um, that night they raised like $130,000 altogether for the clinic. And um, I had like my family there. My girls were there. My, you know, friends from medical school. Like, I shook down everybody I knew for money. It was, um, <laughs> I was really determined. Um, and so then, you know, I sort of rode that wave. And then a week later, I, I walked into court and I was, um, you know, my kids then were much older. Um, I had teenagers now um, and they had grown up with this being this shadow in our house, like for so long. And they were very, I'm sure, watching very carefully to see how I navigated it. And I just wanted to be the model of, of, of grace under pressure. Um, for them and um, for myself. And um, and then a lot of the people that had come to the gala, they came to trial, um, which in the end actually made a big impression on the jury. Um, they said that they didn't understand the medicine, but all these hospital people kept showing up. So they, you know, I must be a good doctor. Um, <laughs> so that was important to them um, in the end because uh, they, they got to question the jury afterwards. And so, um, and yes, it, it was a much shorter trial. They were not seeking economic damages at that time. The the demand was much lower um, and they cut out all sorts of stuff because the the plaintiff in a lot of ways was turned out not to be an ideal plaintiff for various reasons. Um, and they wanted to eliminate all of that stuff, but they completely changed their argument and they got all new experts and they tried to make some other cockamamie story and there's a, a neurosurgeon, that's the person I was talking to you about, this neurosurgeon um, testified about like completely outlandish things. Like, I mean, just lying, 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 lying through his teeth. And there's, of course, not a thing that I can do about that after the fact, because um, we're not even in the same specialty. But, um, you know, but I let that, I was, I was kind of used to that by that, that point. It was still, you know, a little flabbergasting, I guess, but um, and then I, I did win a second time. And so then they um, declined to appeal. So um, 12 years in, it was it was finally done. Sounds like and, they should have taken the money and ran. Well, they, you know, well, everybody's I guess, well, my, in hindsight. My, yeah, well, yeah. my insurer wouldn't 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 give it up, I guess. Oh, but, oh right. Um, so that's correct. So the, your, your carrier basically defended you, you said they could settle. I said they could but, settle. But your carrier said this is a defense, a defensible case. You're right. fighting ready. Right. Up. I think they had offered a policy limit settlement, and my right. insurer was like, "No way." So, and then of course, the more you find out about the plaintiff, um, it was very interesting because they'd hired a private investigator and like done mm -hmm. all this stuff. I didn't even know this was happening. So much stuff happens behind the scenes, but. Um, they did some very, 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 very deep due diligence. Oh, I, like I mentioned the hematologist from Yale. That guy, um, you know, gets on the stand and starts spouting all the stuff about heparin. And my attorney um, I, at, at least took the, took the time to find out that he was, he hadn't been board certified in a decade. And his, you know, his profile at Yale certainly said he was a board certified hematologist. So when things like that come out on the stand, um, they absolutely disempower that expert, and I think it's it's so important to have an attorney who does who does their due diligence, who like knows what to look for and how to, you know. When I say that he was a good attorney, like he was really, I thought 
he did he did a great job. He did a great job. It sounds was, like you had an excellent attorney guiding yeah, you. Um, absolutely. How would you counsel someone that you know who gets this type of letter from uh, a patient, now a plaintiff, in terms of finding an attorney? Typically, the carrier will assign an attorney. But how do how can how do you become a good defendant? Someone who can first understand the skill set of the attorney, what his strengths and weaknesses are, and then how to help them do a better job. So, you know, this is interesting because more and more and more um, in my specialty, at least, there are a lot of, you know, large um, sort of captive insurers. You're, you're insured with the hospital and everybody's got mm-hmm. this sort of shared defense and you, you're all going to have one attorney together. Um, and a lot of those times, unless you really want to hire your own attorney, um, you know, you get what you get. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but a lot of times people who, I mean, I have to say like people who really dedicate themselves to malpractice defense, if they have a good track record, if they, um, if they specialize in that, I mean, they honestly tend to be, I mean, so obviously with like with medicine, some people are better than others. Um, but, but a lot of them tend to be quite good. It's when you, you know, on the other side, I think a lot of times the plaintiff's attorneys, they just pick any sort of personal injury person and they have no idea what's going on. You can tell mm-hmm. in five minutes that that plaintiff's attorney doesn't know anything about medicine. Um, but I, but it, it is a tough position to be in if you, if you don't get a choice in your attorney. Um, and I would say that if you really are, are concerned, you could look into, uh, people do hire their own. Um, but you can get a sense, I think, pretty early on when you start talking about your, the medicine that you, you know, you start talking about your case, they should be able to see the the strengths and weaknesses of that case. They should be able to, like, clearly, art- just like a doctor with their patients, like a good attorney can articulate to you, like, this is what needs to happen. This is how you should be performing. This is how you should be preparing. This is what to expect. Um, and, you know, mine certainly did that in spades. And if you're on, if you, if you do have, um, you know, if you're, if you're insured privately where you can have your own attorney, a lot of times you do have a choice. Um, and so one thing that I definitely tell people is that if you do have a choice and I would absolutely look into their reputation, their track record, make sure that you have a, a partner, at least peripherally involved in your case. Um, and if you're, if things are really not going well, you talk to the insurer about, I just, I just don't think that I can be as good a defendant as I could be, but this, it's not working out. And it's there, honestly, they, they should work with you to find you someone that you, you feel is going to really serve me. But remember, I think everyone has to remember that the, 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 the attorney really works for the insurer. Um, yeah, but- I like to say um, somewhat <laughs> cynically, the attorney has three clients. First, they're working for themselves. Then they work for the insurance company and they're working for you. Now, ethically, as your client, they're supposed to be the zealous advocate for their client, yes. which would be you. Yes. But um, you hopefully will only be seeing them one time. And if they work for an insurance carrier, they may get repeat business human nature being what it is. But if the magic's not there with an attorney, um, many carriers will allow you to switch. I would counsel um most people, if you are going to switch, don't wait till the last minute because if you're mm-hmm. waiting to one week before trial, it ain't going to happen. So if right. if the magic's not there early on, if there's a personality conflict or you think the defense attorney is not picking up on the med- medical concepts of it, it's not unusual or inappropriate to ask ask to switch. It does. It definitely does happen. Yeah. It's like getting a, you know, getting another doctor. There are a lot of parallels, I think, between this whole like when you 
when you become sort of like the patient that doesn't understand the system or what's going to happen and you expect your attorney to be that person who's going to guide you through the process and teach you and tell you how it is that you're, you know, that what's what to expect. And um, some people are definitely better about that. And I find that attorneys absolutely forget, just as physicians do, that we don't know the lingo. We don't know what that (laughs) means. I don't know what that means. I, you know, and sometimes you'll ask and sometimes you won't. Sometimes you'll just sit there and be like, this is all going over my head, but okay. You know, I'm just going to trust you because I don't, I don't know what else to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, right. to have an, at least some baseline idea, it's like being an educated patient, like having some baseline idea of what you're getting into and what you should expect is, is probably super helpful. Well, educated patient um, who understands post-op follow-up, for example, and can be compliant is more likely to have a great outcome. So I never actually thought about the parallels between the doctor-patient relationship and the lawyer-doctor or lawyer-client relationship. There probably are tremendous parallels. Oh, I think so. I think yeah, so. That's fascinating. Look, we're running out of, we're running short on time. Um, on the way out, what are the pearls? What are the, what are the nuggets of wisdom um, you wish doctors to know, particularly those who have never been in a medical legal crisis before? What are, what are the take-home points? What do you wish you had known mm. going into this? Um, I really wish I had known how, one, that, you know, how many of my role models had been in my shoes. Mm-hmm. I No one had talked about it. I just thought that, you know, this was something to be ashamed of. And obviously I was a bad doctor because this was happening to me. And I wish I'd known. Um, I wish that, you know, we as a culture were sort of more open about that. And I think once you know that your role models have been in this position, um, it actually, it helps a lot. Um, I also wish I knew that what I was going through, what I was experiencing was completely expected and normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and what made it, you know, almost too hard to bear was my not understanding that there were ways that I could feel better, um, that there are ways that I could be better and that, um, that this is completely, you know, when it's it for physicians for a, a case like that is, is a real trauma, getting named in a case like that is a real trauma. And there is a process, um, to digesting and accepting that. And there are actually things that you can actively do. Um, to feel better about it. And one of those things is is learning about the process. We, I think we like to avoid learning too much about it, um, but because we just want to sort of put our hands, our heads in the sand. But, you know, knowledge is really an antidote to anxiety, I think. Um, and you've got to talk about it. You've got to talk about it with, you know, peers, um, your spouse, your, you know, your family, just, and be very mindful that, it really can seep into all sorts of spheres of your life if you are not um, prepared for it. And I think that um, we need to do a better job of telling our, our residents and, and other physicians um, that there, there are ways to insulate yourself from, from some of the really um, negative effects of litigation stress um, and litigation. It does not, have to, does not have to ruin your life. It ruins a lot of lives. It does not have to do that. It does. There are people who have become profoundly depressed. Uh, and there are some people who have taken their lives. And Absolutely. You, you wish that had they been armed with some of this information, whether a different outcome might have taken place. Oh, I have I, I with all of my heart believe that that's um, that is the truth. And I, I think that I, you know, in a lot of ways, um, I saved my own life. I saved my own marriage. But it mm-hmm. took a long time for me to figure that stuff out. 
Um, and now, as they say, there's no, there's no zealot like a convert. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And on that note, I want to um, to tell all of our listeners, you need to turn on to Dr. Pence's podcast, Doctors and Litigation, the L word again, that's Doctors and Litigation and the L word. I, I can tell you firsthand that podcast rocks. And if, <laughs> you, you. if you've ever had any medical legal scare, which would mean every doctor, you owe it to yourself to, uh, to subscribe to that podcast. Gita, how do people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Um, they can find me at Brown. It's Gita, G-I-T-A underscore Pensa, P-E-N-S-A at brown.edu. Um, and that's usually the, that's usually the best way to find me. That's how people typically find me. One of the greatest things about doing this podcast and, um, and I, it's, it's gotten some traction. I think, you know, there's a lot of, I, I, I get a lot of, um, um, emails, um, from people who've listened and found it helpful. And, and, you know, that to me has probably been the most redeeming thing out of all of this. Like it just, it helps me too, right. It helps me make sense of, 12 really long years. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I welcome anybody's comments or correspondence. It's been a delight speaking with you. I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time. Thanks, Dr. Pence. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for what you do. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice, and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups, and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.